Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, we've got returning guest uh, this week, Phil Chrisman, uh, who is a... L- hey, guys. Howdy. Hey, buddy. A lecturer at the University of Michigan and author of the upcoming book, How to Be Normal. Um, a guide for any podcast listener, I think, you know, if you've ever downloaded a podcast, you need this kind of advice in your life. So, you know, this is basically, uh, um, you know, Jordan Peterson uh, style advice. No, I'm just kidding. Though there may, I think he pops up, he comes up. (laughs) Uh, Phil may agree. I don't know. Correct me if wrong, but cleaning your room generally not. And in the abstract, one's room should be at least moderately tidy. I don't know. Do you think that's? Yeah, it's not. It's uh, you know within reason. Yeah, you yeah. don't. You don't have to read a lot of Jungian uh, psychoanalysis to figure that out. If, in my view, by the way, uh, students who are being tested, apparently he did. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out so well. The room uh, tidying was not enough for a good old Jordan. Uh, but but for those mm. that are going to be tested and want the cliff notes on on Phil's book. Uh, and want to learn about Phil as a person in his complexity, the chapters let us know that he is, one, a man. He is uh, white. He is cultured. He is religious. He was fundamentalist. He does care. He is married, and he's Midwestern. And there you go. That's the synopsis. But yeah, is that right? Pretty, I mean, essentially. I, I, I don't think I had – I hadn't planned it that way, but that is, right? that, that is a pretty good – pretty good breakdown but it's I'm more complex cultured. this I'm is so, fucking so cultured yes yes so we will defer to the high well we'll see how we can uh spatially um you know analogize understanding art we'll get to that yeah uh, and maybe maybe <laughs> uh to start us off here phil um i feel like again you can correct me if i'm wrong but there's a sort of a little bit of an ironic subtext to your uh title there uh, you talk about oh, yeah. in the pandemic how like like normal became almost a joke, um, and and uh, something that I think has only become more relevant. You know, is there has been this sort of stampede among a lot of uh, elite like opinion makers to sort of like try to force the country back to quote unquote normal, mm-hmm. bef- like. Even before, you know, like the number of deaths has decreased, you know, to any kind of reasonable extent, you know, like it in a, in a sense of where like, like if you look at the science another month, maybe, and we'd, we might be, might, might be in like a pretty good place, but it's like, no, we must get rid of mass mandates. We must get the kids back in school. Mm-hmm. You all should be eating indoors as much as possible and, <laughs> and stop just get your ass to a restaurant. <laughs> Go. It is your patriotic. It's, a, it's right. almost, it's almost like a repeat of it's shopping like after 9-11. After 9/11 yeah, yeah. When we were going to beat the terrorists by shopping. The, it's yeah. just like, it's your. It's your patriotic duty to be rude to a waitress at Apple. Mo- yeah, the right. the most American possible response to any sort of trauma. You need to go harass a service worker and then leave a one cent tip. This is how we yeah, defeat yeah. Islamo fascism and the coronavirus. But so, can you talk a little bit about this, like just this notion of normal? As I feel like it kind of pervades the book, and uh, normal being. Uh, um, in, in some senses, like, you know, an aspirational stuff, like we all have to have some sort of a baseline, but also a kind of misleading or even like insane way of approaching, mm-hmm. you know, certain problems. Like there may not be a normal available to us and pretending like there is, uh, does no one any favors. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is a, a collection of essays that I, I, you know, have written over the last several years. Not really initially planning them as as any kind of group or series. And I just I just kind of realized after I had started um, <clears throat> uh, after I had started publishing in venues that weren't like tiny Christian magazines read by about 40 people, which is <laughs> where I started. The, you know, those, those were my like equivalent of like the basement hardcore show. Um, <laughs> A zine. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, once I, once I had ascended past like zine readership level, uh, that, um, and, and no, sh- no shade to, to those, those magazines. Uh, but, um, cause they, they published me. So thanks. Uh, but yeah, that everything that I, that people wanted me to write about, uh, like the pieces that got commissioned, if I pitch, pitched them or that people suggested that I write about was, was basically like, would basically be like, give me a thoughtful take on this or that aspect of your life that seems very banal and, you know, sort of either statistically average or, um, <clears throat> corresponding to some normative idea about what Americans are supposed to be like. Um, like people, me- Midwesternness, masculinity. No, is that, is that the reason for that request was to reach a broader audience or what, why do you think they asked for that kind of uh, piece? You know? Well, like my friend Barbara McClay, when she commissioned the masculinity essay, I think her idea was that I would, um, I would have something to say about masculinity that would, that would not be, that would not be boring and that would not be completely reactionary. Right, right, um, right, right, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't actually want to write that one at first. I was like, that, mm, mm. I don't know, that's, that could get navel gazy, that could get really boring. Mm. Um, and, and I, I think it was, I think it was actually like, um, the, the spur of trying to not repeat what I'd seen other writers do on the subject and to not be boring that, mm. um, that ended up making that fun to write. But yeah, so it, it definitely my relationship to the word normal in this book is, is, is ironic. I mean, my, my friends, uh, started joking to me after I'd written a couple of pieces like the Midwesternist masculinity, et cetera, that it just, it just seemed like I had a beat, you know? <laughs> um, and, and then I did find, especially with, with writing about the Midwest and in my first book that it was, it was interesting. It was interesting to sort of compare the weirdness of my experiences of these categories with the, um, averageness that that they're supposed to to embody um i kept finding that to be true and then that that did end up being a pretty productive vein but yeah this is uh sorry podcast listeners this is not an advice book i can't you know uh, it won't it won't tell you how to be normal um and and i uh, i mean Although the, the, those the that feel the need for self-help book might actually find something therapeutic in, in, in the way that you treat these topics instead, actually, from my perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think, like, uh, I mean, it it's helps me figure out some stuff to to write it. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, 
it will be helpful that way. But all everything that you just said, Ryan, about like the pressure to return to normal. um, Like I have, I have really felt that lately and, and it's been in ways that make me kind of sick. Like, um, you know, the, the, it, it does, it does feel like the United States is getting back to its like normal habits, like, um, uh, playing just, just the tip about whether we're going to have a nuclear war with Russia. That's, that's very normal for us. Uh, looting Afghanistan, normal, uh, right. <laughs> normal right. shit and, yeah. and completely, completely disgusting. No, that's right. It's, it's like, a, you know, instead of uh, money printer, go burr, it's like people grinder, go grind. That's the American way, yeah. you know, what, yeah, whether domestic yeah. or, or globally. Um, it does. Yeah. It, it seems like, I don't know. My, my sort of theory in this, uh, case is that, the pandemic in in many ways just like totally broke apart the political consensus for a hot second. I mean, we had five mm-hmm. trillion dollars of you know economic stimulus. We totally mm-hmm. fucked up the uh, containment. You know that was basically a dead letter by like April twenty twenty. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not a hundred percent, but like the idea that we could hit zero COVID is just politically out of the question um uh but there is like in terms of just stuffing money into people's pockets uh and and like making the economy rip almost sort of by accident we've created this massive boom and it seems like it ruled (laughs) yeah yeah there it was so good to see i'm so sad seeing that window close is actually driving me a little insane Yeah. yeah Yeah, but there's uh, there's I think uh, there there's been a backlash to this and a, and trying to reinforce a sense of normal um, that that uh, you know you read the New York Times, which is an increasingly reactionary publication, it seems to me, um, and every article about the economy is um, inflation or worker shortage. Uh, no one wants to yeah. work. No one wants to no work. No one wants yeah. to work uh, in 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 well last year there I was just looking this up 6.7 million jobs created last year uh which is more than the uh, entire Obama presidency <laughs> and um the greatest single year job creation number in raw terms at least in American history. Um and uh so I think there's this there's a sense maybe inchoate and and you know not a conspiratorial sense but this idea uh that is sort of percolating organically among the American elite that this can't be allowed to take root. We can't yeah. let people begin to believe or to expect um that the government will save you if like you're in economic difficulties. Uh, you know, setting aside the yeah. possibility of an administrative state, that seems like a much harder lift. But like we could stuff money into people's pockets pretty easily. That's all. You just need one envelope to go to the right d- door. I mean, we struggled with even yeah. that. But like, you know, this isn't building <laughs> Chinese high speed rail networks. Um, and and yeah, there's this sense, you know. And so 
in your conception of normal, you could sort of look at it two ways. That like there's the bad way of saying, all right, time to go back to normal. Remember, life is shit. You are a peasant of a surf in a in an economy that that can only give you just ephemeral, meaningless joy. Uh, you know, your racist Facebook uncle yelling at you and uh, going to work at a job you hate until you die of an easily preventable disease at age sixty seven. Um, Mm -hmm. but then there's also, you could think about it, uh, you know, what about a new normal? What if it were an expectation that the government will save you if you're in economic difficulties and that to me, you know, it like, so the norm, the valence of normality and like the expectation, you know, kind of what you're like getting at in your essays, uh, it seems like, like a, a potentially a powerful weapon in, in, in a sense, you know, to like for for people to be like, no, no, this is this is outrageous. You can't do it. You can't do this to me. I'm an American. I deserve money in my pocket whenever I am slightly inconvenienced. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think one of the, I think one of the useful moves that I've learned from like reading, I don't know what we might think of people as like think of as people who are like they're smart left-wing wonk types who are also really good shit posters (laughs) which is a relatively i don't know that's a new development i when i was in in college uh, you know we didn't have that i i just had to read noam chomsky articles and be like what um we didn't we didn't have matt bernig we didn't have felix biederman yet but uh the the way they do turn the tables on what's morally normative. Um, and so they talk about people who impose aus- uh, people who impose economic austerity in defiance of uh, what works in defiance of history, in defiance of just the most commonplace kinds of magnanimity um, and, and decency and, uh, talking about those people as as like freaks who are who have been deeply perverted by their educations uh, <laughs> you know who who had something uh go go wrong with their brains um i i do yeah i do think i mean I, on a basic level i i yeah i think that's true uh, and and i hadn't quite seen it that way before because mm. you know I, I I went to college, and so those kinds of arguments, even if I didn't agree with them, they felt like the gravity I had to fight. Um, and, and so, yeah, like remembering that there's something normative um, and commonsensical about the idea of taking care of other people, uh, and and. Yeah, not thinking of your fellow citizens or your fellow human beings as uh, lazy pack animals who who have to be continually goaded uh, with the threat of of starvation or other suffering, um, because that really is like that's the unstated worldview that links everything from the center to the pretty far right, um, which you know, and and that's the um that's 
the climate of yeah, yeah we, opinion writing in this country. We should we should perhaps note um, that uh, just today, at the the day of recording, February eighteenth, research was published from Colombia. I think showing that the child poverty rate went up from twelve percent <sighs> to. 17% in one month because the child tax credit that was part of the American Rescue Plan did not get extended this year. And so because of Joe Because Manchin. of Joe Manchin. I mean, and he had the one sick free. He, he had the explicit <laughs> motivation you were talking about right there. He uh he did not like the child tax credit expansion because it didn't have a work requirement. Um it, it gave out money to all families. Just like what Christ might do, um, but Joe Just like. Joe Manchin wanted those uh, those families, uh, those 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 children, those single mothers specifically, those the poorest group in the country on average, uh, to feel you know the whip of starvation at their back, so that they will go and work at Applebee's and get yelled at by uh, you know residents of the villages in Florida and get take that one penny tip you know with a with a wink and a smile um because how dare they be poor and how dare they be single moms uh why didn't they follow the success sequence <laughs> yeah no i it, right turns He's, out they all didn't make their bed when they woke up in the morning that was they the, all that didn't was make the, their yeah, bed that's what happened <laughs> They didn't stand up with their sh- with their shoulders straight or whatever the hell. They they are getting totally owned by the chaos dragons. <laughs> uh, no, it's well, right. I so I used I used to think that that you know like ten ten years ago I thought that that kind of outlook was was bad, silly, it was hurtful. I opposed it. I didn't think as much about how like yeah in a real sense it's abnormal like you have to have your character a little bit warped you have to have your brain a little bit warped Hmm. um you have to be pretty strongly propagandized i mean it's it's like joe manchin is like a character out of one of the marquis de sade's novels Um, (laughs) and and should be made to feel like it every time he leaves his house quite frankly uh and you know i like i grew up around like very conservative people but the and they have a lot of i mean uh, <laughs> the book talks a lot about uh fights that i've had with everybody in my family over the years but like that absolute terror that somebody somewhere um, might not be starving. Like someone like my mom, who's deeply, deeply conservative and, you know, was voted very harmfully for her entire life. Like she doesn't have that because, you know, she, she didn't have her, her brain rotted by, by reading, uh, years and years of op-eds in the, in the Washington Post, frankly. Well, yeah, yeah we should mention probably that it's not just Joe Manchin. We, we've, we've for so long, uh, you know, as friend of the pod, uh, Kevin points out that it's, it's Manchin and all the Republicans. We, we for so long assumed that they are uh, purveyors of evil. We forget to even mention them in, in, in this calculus. But, uh, right, but that sure. yeah. quite clearly yeah, relates, that's... though, to, to, you know, 
look, that they're the party of, of manliness and, uh, you know, evangelical religious uh, Christianity, right? So, like, you you can speak well about uh, that phenomenon that we, we kind of, I think, try to repress or, or not think about lest we get enraged every second of the day, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also... Right. I, I left, I leave the Republicans out of my calculus too. I just treat them like lost, um, basically beyond redemption. <laughs> or like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, which, not a site of struggle as it were. Right. Right. No, the, the struggle has, has been, uh, has been decisively. It's like the, the zombie film evil. or something. They've already turned into zombies. Yeah. They're, they're no longer, you know, the, the funny thing about that, though, is that Mitt Romney proposed a child allowance, a straight, not even a tax credit, a straight up t- child allowance yeah. that uh, is is more generous than Biden's. It's more generous and it's more blatant mm-hmm. and it's uh, f- uh, funded with a big tax on well, the rich. And as, as friend of the pod, uh, you know, Harvey K pointed out, Josh Hawley's new book is proposing like anti-monopoly, antitrust, uh, busting um, Amazon into pieces kind of stuff that you, you don't hear from very many Democrats, right? So so I guess, you know, yeah, the- as c- cynical as these moves might be, we shouldn't forget that these people are people we can push and hold accountable and maybe... Yeah, I uh, genuinely I didn't know what to make of the Romney thing. Yeah. I mean, Josh Hawley, I just always assume that he's going to, yeah, he's going to make um, the occasional anti-monopoly noise. Yeah. And if it ever comes to. Won't do it. Yeah. A vote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't. Whereas Romney, I wondered, was was he. Was he trying? I mean, here's another example of going back to a, a new baseline, uh, a new sense of a, a new idea of what's normal. Yeah. Was he, was he trying to um, sort of invent what he thinks might be the the Republicans, the post-Trump Republican uh, party? Was he was he trying to like was he trying to open up a new lane, or or was that just something else cynical? Um, was he getting himself some headlines that say uh, Romney proposal more progressive than Joe Biden proposal? Or yeah. did, did he what, remember? What did maybe he remembered he was Mormon and he should be for things like that all the time. <laughs> I mean, that is uh, again. I, I would. I would. I think I would point. You know, Romney is like a. He's not a courageous guy. He's not. He's a lesser <laughs> yeah. son of greater fathers. But I don't. I. Th- yeah, I don't yeah, think you yeah. can ignore the Mormon context. Um, you know, the, the Mormon church has this whole parastate apparatus, a massive welfare system, basically, to members of the church. And there's like substantial coercion to like force people to, you know, nudge people to convert. But that's a kind of a that's a kind of a different like, uh, you know, coercion than then or, or, or encouragement or whatever you want to call it. than like work for capitalists to make profit at like soul crushing job. Um, it's, it's, you know, sort of join our, 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 our organization. And then in return, you get this like sort of huge, like will help people buy homes. Um, that it's an actual vision. Yeah. Right. And that, you know, it's, it's conservative. It's real conservative in a sense, but it's not American descended from classical liberalism and Barry Goldwater conservatism. It's, it's like, uh, you know, a way, a way of imposing, like I would say hierarchy, that's conservatism, like imposing hierarchies. 
but hierarchies that, that obtained some buy-in. You know, feudalism was like this. You had all sorts of rights as a peasant. You know, you could cut wood. What, what you're saying, hierarchies that actually do things for you. <laughs> you need a, you know, yeah. if you're a feudal lord and you your peasants need enough food to survive so they can till the fields and make the money that supports your, you know, grandiose mm-hmm. ambitions to go conquer Saxony or whatever. You know, like this, this, uh, <laughs> yeah. th- this is sort of like, realistic view of resources that like ideology about you know joe like joe Manchin's like moral vision that like working yeah. you need to beat people into jobs because the thing about that is it doesn't work like you look at yeah, the yeah. fraction yeah. of americans participating in the labor market with our crummy welfare state you're like five six seven points below the nordic countries where they have incomprehensibly generous welfare programs there are more people working in a much more comfortable society and that's well, this it's almost yeah. it's almost like what is natural and the baseline for human beings is to want to cr- contribute yeah right. if you possibly can yeah, yeah. to to actually be participate in human existence. And that maybe, you know, is a good jumping off point to start talking about your uh, religious chapters a little bit, because that seems to be like a pretty, you know, the, the Mormon church is not nearly as utopian as it once was, you know, like 150 years ago um, when they were trying to set up Zion in the desert. Um, but I think it's carried the, 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 uh, marks of that utopian kind of somewhat egalitarian uh, view to the present day in a way that makes Mormon conservatism very markedly different from a uh, modern libertarian infected kind of feral Trumpy. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. Oppositional defiant disorder uh, conservatism <laughs> today in the mainstream Republican Party. Yeah. yeah. And can you so yeah. can you talk a little bit about like you know your 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 essay with um, about you know religion and your um, you know your your how that relates to you know this this concept of of normal normality normalcy as uh as warren harding would call it we've been discussing (laughs) yeah yeah there's there's two essays in the book that directly grapple with with my christianity and one of them was i did it for brandy jensen at the outline uh which was that was such a great publication that was one of those publications that you like you read it and you're like oh this rules this is not long for this world. <laughs> this is too good, too weird. Um, some, th- th- some millionaire is going to get a cold and, and we're not going to have this anymore. And that's basically what happened. But, um, but yeah. Uh, and so that was, uh, <clears throat> that was part of a series Brandy was doing where you'd like respond to some piece of conventional wisdom that pisses you off because it's wrong. Um, and, uh, the, so what I'm responding to there is the idea that, um, religion is always, uh, comforting or that it, it gives you this comforting certainty. Um, you know, like when people say, well, you know, I'm an atheist, but I, I wish, I wish I had your comfort and, and your certainty about life. And I'm like, really? Cause being a Christian has given me like, nights of profound like soul harrowing anxiety <laughs> like uh 
you know, just total, total Kierkegaard hours who, who up, you know, <laughs> that, that shit drives me crazy. And I, t- but I touched on the fundamentalism thing a little bit because, you know, so you, you can argue this with, with people and they'll say, oh, okay, well, you're a, you're a mainline Protestant who's acquainted with the idea of doubt and whatever, but, but fundamentalists, they're really certain. And like, I, you know, I grew up fundamentalist and, um, I didn't really lose my faith in, uh, in Jesus at any point. I just fell out with the, the idea of scriptural inerrancy specifically, uh, which is for me, that's the dividing line that separates even sometimes quite conservative forms of Protestantism from, uh, from actual fundamentalism. Like if, if you think, the the bible is is basically true and god is real and jesus did all those miracles i mean you know catholics think that orthodox think that that's that's just christianity if you think the earth was created in 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 six days because it has to be because the bible can't have like a it cannot have a hair out of place or the whole thing falls apart that's fundamentalism or metaphors Um, you can't you have to <laughs> You're right. It's very scientific. Right. It's very I, yeah. positivist. Like, no, we must add up the baguettes to get the accurate age. It's of the very universe. yeah, no, it's it's very modern. Uh Absolutely. and it's very intellectual, which I'll, I'll get I'll get to in a second, but it's 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 not mindless. I think it's wrong, but I don't it's not um people conflate it with just like uneducated stupidity. No, you you have to read a lot of books to be that stupid. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It, well, it misinformed. Yeah, I, yeah. It's wrong. I mean, let's just—it's okay to just use the word wrong. You know, you, right. you can be so, you can work so incredibly hard uh, at being wrong. You know, um, but anyway, so I, I start to address that that meme a little bit in the in the faith essay that i did for the outline where i talk about like no look even uh i grew up among fundamentalists and those people have doubts too you know um they ask themselves why god let aunt so-and-so have cancer you know they're not mindless robots and then the other essay on fundamentalism i like go into my childhood a little bit more um and yeah i i try to I try to figure out whether there's any sort of links between that that specific, very modern inerrancy thing, yeah. um, and and some of the thing other things that strike that strike me as sort of maybe not absolutely unique, but but distinctive of the way I grew up. Do you think it's connected um, to the? masculinity essay into the kind of, um, because what I see in, in, in your great essays here are, um, unlike the visions that, that are coherent and and that work, uh, these visions of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a person of faith or what it means to be white. These are not just, um, problems for people, but they're incoherent. It's like the Ouroboros that they're like self-defeating in some way. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I wonder if you see a link between the the masculinity piece and the, especially when you, when you talk about that kind of inerrancy and being, um, everything has to be just so, and and nothing can be amiss. Uh, that reminds me of the kind of anxiety of, 
um, you know, the expectations put put upon um, men, especially maybe white men from within, perhaps, or from society or whatever. So uh, do, do, you, do you see links there between those two essays or? Um, in, in terms of like that, that emotional tone of, uh, I, I, this, this I must punch, be absolutely right? seamless. Yeah. Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 I do. Um, well, and also like, <laughs> I must not fail to, like the, the idea that like, I must not fail to protect, I must be able to guard against every risk, you know, like, like it, this almost isn't a kind of idealism, right? It's a kind of like, uh, epistemological, I mean, I think it's kind of epistemological closure, but this, this just fantasy that, um, uh, of a kind of perfection that can be lived, you know? It's, yeah, that's the, it's idealism in another sense too, like almost like super heroic self expectations in one way. Um, which, I mean, I, I, I think, I think in that way, I, you know, um, I, I took what I was taught very seriously and kind of still do like my therapist and I have to talk, have conversations about, um, you know, why I expect myself to be really, really good at like 50 different things that, that, you know, no human, no human being could simultaneously be be good at um yeah so there there is a a kind of like well and part of what's part of what's messed up uh about fundamentalism that, that took me a while to figure out is that there is a kind of like masculine protector defender role toward one's beliefs. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah. Right. That, th- that true Christianity. And of course here, fundamentalism, like it, it, Protestant fundamentalism, like stops being unique. I mean, uh, there's a wing of the Catholic church that is, is like this. Uh, there's definitely, I mean, the, the ortho bros on Twitter, uh, are like this. Um, we could, talk about similar emotional similarities or similarities of style between uh islamic fundamentalists and christian fundamentalists but like seeing your belief system as something that is constantly embattled from without um there's a really good book called american apocalypse um it's it's like one of the handful of like really big broad sweeping histories of of american protestant fundamentalism and it talks about fundamentalism as something that is specifically like apocalyptic um mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that christianity like the the true christian faith is always uh, about to fall to some sort of external challenge uh, and like yeah yeah. If, 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 if Christianity is going to fall to anything, it's Christians being giant morons. That is, and I include myself among the possible giant morons. Like that is this, if, if you're looking for a story that picks up from the story of the New Testament organically and from the story of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament combined organically, it would be a story in which, uh, 
you know, God, because the Bible as it exists is a story of God doing things and then humans responding inadequately. One would expect Christian history to be a story of God having done yet another wonderful thing and uh, the people who have witnessed that responding really inadequately, subverting it and ruining it. And um, that's the that's the threat that I think Christ- Christians are supposed to wire themselves up to be looking out for. But instead, uh, I, th- I think... Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Protestant fundamentalists wire themselves up to like, how are the Democrats going to destroy Christianity? Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting parallel between, and and maybe a way into why the religious right merges with um, the evangelical or fundamentalist Christian right. Um, can you talk more about masculinity? Because I think we we left out the 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 bit there about how you experience the expectations of being a man as having to be that protector against all risk and, and, and also in a kind of way, you know, implied hierarchy of, of ruling over or protecting over your women or your vulnerable people. Uh, cause I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was what I really tried to make sense of when I, I started writing that essay was, and, and, you know, I had been kind of wondering at this, for a while, just in my own life, too. Um, like, um, I, I was taught very sincerely, like my, uh, my, you know, my dad is a, he's a sincere guy and he really did believe in these ideas of like chivalry and that a, a man's job is to like, um, look out for his women folk in, in, in exchange for a certain amount of deference, uh, from them. And, and he really, like, he, he wasn't kidding about that. He, he really believed it. And, you know, he taught me certain things like you, you, if you see a woman being picked on, you stand up for her, you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you never hit a woman, uh, uh, which as far as they go, uh, those things are positive uh i mean the the deference piece of it the the expectations of women are not positive but the other stuff seems fine and so i wondered i as far back as when i was a teenager i i started trying to figure out like why it is that most of the guys that i like went to church with or knew uh from school would have basically subscribed they would have said they subscribed to that ideology but the the girls i was around just like they weren't safe and they weren't happy um yeah like where why isn't the protecting happened right happening right that's like, right the, the violence seems to be happening that the, the macho stuff seems to be happening but the actual yeah. protection of the vulnerable seems to be missing that's <laughs> funny Uh, No, it was something that I figured out that is obvious to anyone who is, uh, who has read like two pages of feminist theory. But, uh, as a 16 year old, I had not read Andrea Dworkin yet. So, you know, (laughs) cut me some slack. So, but something that was very obvious to me was that like the way the category of slut functioned to mark out, uh, girls that did not need to, to be protected and, could be treated any which way, could be joked about any which way. Uh, and, 
nobody felt the need to to stick up for them. Um, and some of those girls were friends of mine, so that kind of bugged me. <laughs> it seemed fucked up. I don't know. Um, I remember reading you know, something so, about Mary Magdalene and stone throwing. I don't remember exactly, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Alexi, you know, in the oldest manuscripts, that uh, that story isn't there. So Whew, that's convenient. Really sure oh, look that at that. One. Okay, great. <laughs> Don't confuse Jesus with some kind of liberal. You know, um, yeah. Like, so it started bothering me like way back then, and I guess I had been puzzling about it for a long time. Like, okay, being protector sounds like a nice way to spend your life. Like, why aren't we doing? why aren't we doing more of that? Um, and, and so that's where kind of figuring out that like the, the idea of masculinity that I was sold, I think involved a more being a protector in the abstract, you know, cultivating skills and disciplines and hobbies uh, and, and, you know, tactical gear collections <laughs> that suggest an ability to protect and an interest in protection and security that is completely abstracted from the actual lives of uh, the people around you. Was it comforting? I don't know if you've seen Station Eleven, but spoiler, it's not just fighting skills and violence that saves the day. You know, art is what we really need in the post-apocalyptic period. So I, I, I think that was com <laughs> that might have been comforting if, if you didn't know, you know? Yeah, that that just feels that feels that feels so comforting. I'm a little suspicious of it. I, I still think I'm not going to be much. Was that written by a anymore. artist by chance? No, just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I really, really weird that this novel suggests that uh, art and storytelling is going to be really important in the apocalypse. No, it's true. I'm, um... I mean, that maybe is kind of the thing. I, f I feel like the post-apocalyptic narrative, you know, like so many of these are, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, 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 stories of extreme violence, social breakdown, you know, like warlordism, you know, and, th and there are uh, examples of that in history. But if you look at specifically like the history of crises, um, like in in uh you know like natural disasters and stuff like that uh hurricane katrina oftentimes what happens is people are totally selfless you know you f you find this like instinctual mm -hmm. sort of primate ish urge you might think to just like go out and like save people um from yeah it's it's the rebecca solnit uh paradise built in hell or yeah. whatever argument yeah that's what really happens and then uh, or or that's one of the things that happens, yeah, it, yeah. Hobbes, Hobbes does not suddenly get proven right every time there's a disaster. And the other thing that happen, that happens that I hadn't really thought about, but it's really commonsensical. Uh, if you, if you do think about it is, uh, so I, I read this book, you know, I, I, I hoped that writing the masculinity essay would cure me of like, <laughs> you know, the, the desire to like, you like to you to like to walk walk big distances with things on your back. I've noticed uh, this is a thing that you do multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> this is this is true. The <laughs> the essay begins with a rather <laughs> Chaplin esque anecdote, uh, anecdote about uh, carrying a piece of furniture several miles. And yeah, I'm still basically I didn't cure myself of being <laughs> that guy by writing the essay, but I. I 
picked up this book recently. It was called like the next apocalypse or something. The guy is like a, the author is archaeologist or something. I could be getting this all wrong, but he's, he studies disasters and he spends a lot of time in that book being like, Oh yeah. If, if, if the zombie apocalypse happens, whatever, uh, if the shit hits the fan, you want to be in the cities. Yeah. You, you want to stay close to people and, and large, complex systems. You do not want to immediately do the thing everybody does, which is get my, round up my, my people and head to the country. Um, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, that actually makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, because you know where that ends? That ends in ca- cannibalism. Okay? That's, that's, what, that's, what, you, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what we don't want, folks. We don't want that. <laughs> For real. <laughs> I lo- oh, I, I, there's no uh, no supply lines left whatsoever, uh, and I'm I'm out in the country surrounded by nothing. So I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna start eating my um, my family. The yeah, and I think it sort of speaks to this specifically like the neuroses of American masculinity, where like you're supposed to provide, but you're supposed to provide like in an individual fashion. You're supposed to have your own individual like bunker with canned food that you keep. The Mormons actually do this kind of thing, by the way, which is kind of, you're supposed to go be a settler colonial. That's right. Uh, on a country that has already been colonized by settlers. Everywhere with the stake. This is mine, mine, yeah. mine. Uh, and then you I claim will, your women. She is mine. Yeah. Everything is mine. <laughs> I will have a huge collection of guns and that's going to ha- how I'm going to protect myself. But then if you think about it for five seconds, you think, no, what, what, what protects people is community. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the ability to have, you know, just to pick an example randomly, like a night watch, you know, you're not just one mm-hmm. guy with a pile of guns or you can't ever sleep, you know, cause it like organized, like this is warfare <laughs> stuff. This is Clausewitz, you know, this is like, how do, how do you organize, you know, materially, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, defeat someone who may want to, you know, uh, enslave you or conquer your territory or whatever? Well, you have to be organized. You have to have more people. You have to have better, you know, discipline and a better quartermaster and more food and more, you know, material, all of that stuff. Um, and in a more prosaic fashion, it's like, well, you know, what there, I was reading a, a paper some time ago about what a heat wave in Chicago, I believe. And it was like, who died in the heat wave? And it depended on neighborhoods. If neighborhoods had been around for a long time uh, and they had like sort of deep social connections, people knew each other, then those places tended to do pretty well. It was in atomized locations where people just sort of, they didn't have anyone to turn to and no one to check on them. You know, that's where you get, you know, a lot of uh, uh, casualties in that sort of situation. It's the David Graeber everyday uh, small C communism stuff that actually makes any kind of human life possible. Yeah. 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 You, you know, I, I wonder, Phil, it's, it seems to me there are resonances throughout here about just what it means to be human and, and what, what we should require of ourselves versus what we feel like we're required to be that can actually harm us and others, even with our best intentions. Um, you know, and, and I wonder if you could talk about, for example, when you, what brought you to write, say, how to be white and, and, um, because it seems like 
you know, let's hear about shit eating allies and what that what that refers to, because it seems like there's a lot of blunt force categorization of people, um, uh, whether it's calling people Karen or, or any number of things that how they function to the individual complex human being that we all are uh, can turn us into uh, weird people who do things that harm ourselves and don't actually address racism, for example. So, so I don't know. I saw this over and over again about what it means to be human uh, and how these, this kind of politics and these kind of categories, um, you know, maybe work against, uh, against purpose. Right. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I'm uh, the, I, I guess the basic bent of, of my thinking is humanist. Um, and then I, as I've encountered different forms of identity politics over the years, I've, I've tried to be conscientious about taking them seriously and, and learning what I can from them and, and not sort of falling into a, like all identity politics is, is bad mindset because the problem with that is that it resembles the mindset that like um iran should disarm <laughs> like yeah oh but only iran you know yeah, what i mean yeah. it's like uh i i'm i'm i i think it's i think the word misogynoir sounds dumb so i don't i don't want anybody to talk about that but meanwhile uh, we're we're not going to talk about how like the the inventors of identity politics were the people who separated themselves out from the rest of the human race and said, I am a white male and I am the apex of creation. Right, right. <laughs> the original identity politics, so, as it were, right? Yeah, the white, yeah, yeah, white yeah. supremacy. Yeah, so it's like, and so I, I mean, I do, I do think ultimately um, everything that comes out of that project uh, is like, it's it's going to be very limited in its ability to help people reach justice but you know telling black people to drop i'm i'm not it's like you you guys disarm when i when i finish convincing uh my guys to to disarm <laughs> you know uh i may be a minute but um as for why i wrote the the whiteness essay specifically i mean one once i realized that the book kind of had this common theme of like you know, things that are either demographically average or stereotypically average. It's like, shit, I've got to write about whiteness. Yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's just sitting there. Was that I the toughest chapter for you, or the toughest essay, do you think? Or, or was the masculinity one? Or how would you, how would you say? That's a, that, that's a good question. Um, actually, the marriage essay was the hardest uh, to write because I, I just, I wanted to write about the experience of, of falling in love and loving somebody and not be too cliched or, yeah. or sentimental and so that was that was scary um but the, I, there was a lot of anxiety with the whiteness essay because um one uh whiteness like how we wound up with this construct that we call whiteness has that's been tackled by some very smart people <laughs> uh <laughs> And, you know, the first the first part of the book or the first part of the essay, uh, I mean, it felt like writing a fucking book, writing that thing yeah, um, is it, it is me kind of just synthesizing a, a couple of those thinkers, you know, Theodore Allen uh, and Nell Irvin Painter and Ta-Nehisi Coates and, you know, 
various other writers. Yeah, Field Sisters and, then, and Racecraft is in there. You know, lots, yeah, lots of good stuff. Yeah, the race, Racecraft in particular. You know, when I when I write an essay, I want to have something to say that I haven't seen someone else say. And I was like, fuck, I don't, I don't think I can beat. I don't think I can beat the Field Sisters. Um, I, I for those for those who don't know, can you tell say why or say, say how you uh, responded to it? Yeah, ra- the the book Racecraft by the Field Sisters. I I think it's a really it's it's just it's an incredible examination of of the moves we make in um in our analysis and speech and thinking that make race kind of appear out of nowhere as though it were a real thing that kind of conceptually conjure it into existence um and it's also like they're they're social scientists but god damn they can really write like <laughs> It's a funny book. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's like genuinely fun to read. So I, I, I felt, I felt shadowed in a Harold Bloom way by that essay, but, uh, or by that book. But what I realized was that I could, I could try to speak to the ways that, uh, liberal, but not left, uh identity i like not it's barely a politics identity speech um i I, identity catechism classes robin d'angelo shit yeah um i i could speak to the way that i i could try to make it more clear than some other uh, i i mean there's been really good left criticism of that stuff but i i could try to um, make it clear exactly why that kind of talk about whiteness is very, very different than the actually useful stuff that I found again in Malvern Painter, Theodore yeah, Allen, yeah. Uh, all, all all those folks, and and also I could clown on it and be funny, um, <laughs> and and we need uh, that. It's that, important. That part was fun. Yeah, <laughs> it it is because it helps people remember why it's silly, right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. Point out the inc- incongruity as you, as you, you know, as you cite yeah. the definition of humor doing um, generally. Sorry, Ryan. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. Just looking at the time here. Yeah. Maybe to, to get possibly wrap us up. Um, I was, it just struck me thinking about, you know, this, this, uh, your, your, your whiteness essay and the, 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 the points you were making about fundamentalists and then like the kind of neurotic uh, masculinity sort of comp- compensatory macho-ness type thing uh, that there's like a sort of through line there. You might say that there's a sort of, you you might call it an, a, a lack of confidence uh, and an, an uh, anxiety or disbelief in the own sort of like proposition that you're advancing um, you know, so with like the, the diversity counselor, you know, like it is, but di- by Robin D'Angelo's own admission, uh, impossible. You can't transcend whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's going to be with you forever. All progressive people are just going to do constant microaggressions until the end of time. And like, like, like whiteness is this, this thing that, that can never be, you know, can only be like slightly ameliorated and even not really very much. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and similarly with, with men, 
uh, you know, that like uh, being afraid of not being considered manly enough, you know, leads people to this like, uh, you know, quest for security. Um, and uh, in this uh, same way with fundamentalist uh, religiosity in which you take like the, the fact that you could do like a empirical analysis of the Bible and find like what seem to be like empirical incongruities or ways of interpreting the text that don't match up with like carbon dating or something. And you, t- and you mm-hmm. react to that very defensively and you take all the assumptions of the empiricist and you try to like defeat them with their own logic in a way that is like sort of childish and comical <laughs> and leaves aside like the most powerful weapon you could possibly have rhetorically, which is that you have magic, you know, that could explain anything. And this is like, a, yeah. And so, and so God just made the fossils look yeah. old, you know, it's, it's fine. The, you know, that's such a Chad move. I, I it, it's completely anti-intellectual and it makes science impossible, but I, just for its sheer Chadness, I, I always kind of, I, I like it when they do that. My, my favorite version actually in, in a sincere way of, of well, the God did it explanation that actually works with modern sciences is somebody said like Joan of Arc was hearing voices. She was just a schizophrenic and, and a person of faith responded, well, how else might God talk to her? Right? Like, well, that's, that's what God, you know, that's the form that, that's, that God's that's beautiful. Yeah. It was pretty great. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, that's one way of of taking the incarnation seriously. I'm not even mad at it. Yeah. But sorry, Ryan, what were you? I interrupt him all the time. You you don't need to apologize for me. It's my fault. (laughs) But yeah, just taking the, you know, uh, the, the, this idea of being, being normal and, and, and crafting a new normal in a way with like, like navigating this dichotomy, you know, in a way like I've, I've, given you in classic seminar fashion preposterously like broad scope of the things to choose from but but how people might you know if you're New vibe. a white male christian for example how you sort of think about uh you know of avoiding the the toxic old normal or picking the things that you do like out of it uh, as you as you um as you feel like and crafting an, a new normal and sort of balancing those two things um, as you, you know, uh, plow forward into a, a noble and terrifying future. <laughs> oh yeah. No Fix it all for <laughs> us, um, Bill. <laughs> well, I know. I, I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it in these terms, but like, so that the, the insecurity and anxiety that you see running through the book and its treatment of these categories, these like supposedly normative experiences. I mean, I think I, I hadn't thought about it this way before, but I I think partly um, I keep getting drawn to writing about that. um, The anxiety of, of trying to be the thing that you supposedly just are. Um, you know, I think I think partly that's just being a very earnest person with maybe a touch of autism spectrum. Uh, I'm not being I'm not being flippant. I, I like think that's really happening. Uh, so there's a little bit of that inflexibility and wanting to wanting to get the rules right. Um, mm. And 
with, with stuff that just doesn't lend itself <laughs> to getting the rules right. Um, and, and so then you start to notice all the little incongruities in the rules and, and, um, you, you, the, the way they kind of eat themselves, uh, all the little platonic aporias, uh, that are in everything. Um, and then, so now I'm realizing why the, the marriage essay kind of seems central to the book for me because, um, God, not, not to be like, really annoying but i i think the um i think the ethical imperative that arises from the book for me is just is is love um <laughs> i i think i and i don't mean like love the feeling i mean love the disciplined and imaginative and empath empathetic or sympathetic depending on your temperament uh, search for the good of the other person, whether you like them right now or not. Um, and, and realizing that if you make that the content that, that it always, you, it, you always have the agency to make that the content of your life. There is always somebody uh, around you who needs you to do that for them. Um, there are always other people around you that you affect in some way. Um, and that, that is that, that, that will at least mislead you less often and much more productively than, <laughs> than does trying to like follow the checklist of rules that like, um, establish you as a, as a man or an American, or whatever the fuck. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. I think, I think you lived up to that, uh, that challenge there, Phil, you know, it's beautiful. And no, you never, no, you never live up to it. You know, but it you try. Insofar as you try. And that's part of what you're saying, right? Cause love is always on offer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can be an instrument of, of God's love if you're a believer or just an instrument of love. And that doesn't mean that you do it perfectly, but it means that it's a way of life that you can uh, pursue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like moments in my life when I was, when nothing good was happening, uh, there, uh, you know, <laughs> I couldn't find a girlfriend. My job sucked. I was poor. There was no union, uh, whatever, uh, for, for me to join. Like nothing good was happening. I could always choose that. And it, it has, I don't know. It has kind of kept me sane at certain points. So I, 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 so far, it works. Yeah, it's a form. Works, it works better than the alternative. It's a form of therapy and uh, and comrade. I think it's a form of solidarity too. So, th thank you for yep. um, offering us your love in the form of this book, in the form of coming on the pod. Uh, I dare say I speak for Coops when I say that we love you, uh, and it's easy to do because we don't hate you. We like you and enjoy your reading, which is really good. Uh, and everyone should buy the book, How to Be Normal. It, it came out recently. It is adorably cute. Um, and, uh, you know, I have my own copy right here in front of me. Uh, I will put it on my pillow and sleep with it tonight. So <laughs> a, a friend, a friend of mine said that the, uh, the size and heft of it is very satisfying to hold oh, in the hand. Yeah, and then, true. and then my friend blushed and was like, that sounds really dirty. And I was like, yeah, Th thanks. Thanks. Hell yeah. <laughs> 
It feels very good to hold it in your hand. Yeah. We we uh, we had to end on, on, a, on a different kind of note there, folks. Um, but there's nothing we wrong did. with that. That's that's right. That's right. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks, buddy. You're always uh, welcome back on. As is your brilliant and wonderful wife. Um, so you're both friends of the pod, and uh, we wish you great success. Oh, yeah. Everybody, go get the book, How to Be Normal. Phil Chrisman, thank you for joining us, my friend. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>